Hey everybody, welcome to 2ZQ Hot Takes, where we discuss issues both big and small. I am your host, the very handsome Tim Kirk, and this time I'll be talking about the central, essential themes shared in three youth-oriented films which accurately reflected their times. Dazed and Confused, Caddyshack, and Heaven Help Us. Dazed and Confused and Caddyshack are now extremely popular movies, while Heaven Help Us is considered a bit more on the obscure side, although it is a very well-made film and gently sweet. All three struck a nerve with audiences and made people laugh a lot. All three had youthful protagonists. All three were reflective of many people's experiences. All three were based on people's real-life experiences. All three dealt with loyalty, love, and youthful exuberance. From Wikipedia, Dazed and Confused is a 1993 American coming-of-age comedy film written and directed by Richard Linklater. The film features a large ensemble cast of actors who would later become stars. The plot follows different groups of Texas teenagers during the last day of school in 1976. The film was a minor success at the box office, grossing less than $8 million in the United States. Despite this, the film has enjoyed critical and commercial success over the years and has since become a cult film. In 2002, Quentin Tarantino listed it as the 10th best film of all time in a sight and sound poll. It ranked third on Entertainment Weekly magazine's list of the 50 best high school movies. The magazine also ranked it 10th on their funniest movies of the past 25 years list. The title of the film is allegedly derived from Jake Holmes' song of the same name. Link later approached the surviving members of Led Zeppelin for permission to use their song, Rock and Roll, in the film. Jimmy Page and John Paul Jones agreed, but Robert Plant refused. It's May 28, 1976, the last day of school at the Lee High School in Austin, Texas. The next year's group of seniors are preparing for the annual hazing of incoming freshmen. Randall Pink Floyd, the school's star football player, is asked to sign a pledge promising not to take drugs during the summer or do anything that would jeopardize the goal of a championship season. When classes end, the incoming freshman boys are hunted down by the seniors and paddled. The incoming freshman girls are also hazed. They are rounded up in the school parking lot by senior girls, covered in mustard, ketchup, flour, and raw eggs, and forced to propose to senior boys. As day fades tonight, freshman Mitch Kramer escapes the initial hazing with his best friend Carl Burnett, but is later cornered after a baseball game and violently paddled. Fred O'Banion, a senior participating in the hazing tradition for a second year after failing to graduate, delights in punishing Mitch. Pink gives the injured Mitch a ride home and offers to take him cruising with friends that night. Plans for the evening are ruined 
when Kevin Pickford's parents discover his intention to host a keg party. Elsewhere, the intellectual trio of Cynthia Dunn, Troy Olson, and Mike Newhouse decide to participate in the evening's festivities. Pink and his friend David Wooderson, a man in his early 20s who still socializes with high school students, pick up Mitch and head for the Emporium, a pool hall frequented by teenagers. As the night progresses, students loiter around the Emporium, listen to rock music, cruise the neighborhood, and stop at the Hamburger Drive-In. Mitch is introduced to sophomore Julie Sims, with whom he shares a mutual attraction. While cruising again with Pink, Pickford, and Don Dawson, Mitch drinks beer and smokes marijuana for the first time. After a game of mailbox baseball, a neighborhood resident brandishing a gun threatens to call the police. They barely escape after the resident fires at their car. After returning to the Emporium, Mitch runs into his middle school friends. They hatch a plan to get revenge on O'Banion. It culminates with them dumping paint on O'Banion, who leaves in a fit of rage. After the Emporium closes, an impromptu keg party is planned in a field under a moonlit tower. Cynthia, Tony, and Mike arrive at their first keg party, where Mike is threatened by tough guy Clint Bruno. Tony runs into freshman Sabrina Davis, whom he met earlier during the hazing, and they begin hanging out together. Cynthia likes Wooderson and exchanges phone numbers with him. Mike, suffering from the humiliation of his confrontation with Clint, decides to make a stand, punches him, and gets tackled. The fight is broken up by Pink and Wooderson. Football player Benny O'Donnell confronts Pink about his refusal to sign the pledge. Pink, the only player not to have signed, believes it violates his individuality and beliefs. Mitch leaves the keg party with Julie. They drive to a nearby hill overlooking town to make out. Tony gives Sabrina a ride home and they kiss goodnight. As night turns to dawn, Pink, Wooderson, Don, Ronslater, and several other friends decide to smoke marijuana on the 50-yard line of the football field. The police arrive so they ditch the drugs. Recognizing Pink, the police call Coach Conrad, his football coach. Conrad lectures Pink about hanging out with losers and insists that he sign the pledge. Pink says that he might play football, but he is not going to sign it. Pink leaves with his friends to get tickets to an Aerosmith concert. Mitch arrives home after sunrise to find his mother has waited up for him. She decides against punishment, but warns him about coming home late again. Mitch goes to his bedroom, puts on headphones, and listens to Slow Ride by Foghat as Pink, Wooderson, Slater, and Simone Kerr travel down a highway to purchase their tickets. I absolutely adore this movie. When asked in an interview what he wanted to do after Slacker, director Richard Linklater said, I want to make this teenage rock and roll spree. I knew I wanted the story to take place on one day in the spring of 1976, but at one point it was much more experimental. The whole movie took place in a car with the characters driving around listening to ZZ Top. Lee Daniel, the director of photography, described the concept. It would have been two shots, one of a guy putting in an A-track of ZZ Top's Fandango and one of two guys driving around talking. The film would be the length of the actual album and you'd hear each track in the background as a source. 
Eventually, Linklater decided to write a script to represent different points of view. The first draft of which took a month to complete, Universal Studios fast-tracked production of Linklater's script, jumping ahead of 30 other films which were in development at the time. Dazed and Confused was released on September 24, 1993, in 183 theaters, grossing $918,127 on its opening weekend. It went on to make $7.9 million in North America. I'm pretty sure I was one of the people who saw that that very first night. On a review aggregator, Rotten Tomatoes, it has a 92% approval rating based on 62 reviews with a weighted average rating of 7.85 of 10. The website's critical consensus reads, featuring an excellent ensemble cast, a precise feel for the 1970s, and a killer soundtrack, Dazed and Confused is a funny, affectionate, and clear-eyed look at high school life. Metacritic provides a score of 78 out of 100 from 19 critics, indicating generally favorable reviews. Rolling Stone's Peter Travers gave the film four stars out of four and praised Linklater as a sly and formidable talent bringing an anthropologist's eye to this spectacularly funny celebration of the rights of stupidity. His shit-faced American graffiti is the ultimate party movie, loud, crude, socially irresponsible, and totally irresistible. The line, all right, all right, all right, became a catchphrase from Matthew McConaughey. Rotten Tomatoes' editorial team credits the film for putting Austin, Texas on the map. The soundtrack was representative to me of all the people I was not supposed to hang out with, but did. The soundtrack for the film was released on September 8, 1993 by the Medicine label, and they consist of hit songs, mostly rock, from the 70s, the film setting. The songs Hurricane by Bob Dylan, Hey Baby by Ted Nugent, and Sweet Emotion by Aerosmith were also included in the film, but not on the commercial soundtracks. The Alien song, for those who listened, by Mila Jovovich, was briefly performed by the character Michelle Burroughs, but was not included in the soundtrack either. Geffen Records attempted to get up-and-coming band Jackal to do a cover of Grand Funks were an American band to play over the end credits and to be released as a single, but Linklater refused. Caddyshack is a 1980 American sports comedy film directed by Harold Ramis, written by Brian Doyle Murray, Harold Ramis, and Douglas Kenny, and starring Chevy Chase, Rodney Dangerfield, Ted Knight, Michael O'Keefe, and Bill Murray. Brian Doyle Murray also has a supporting role. Caddyshack was Ramus's directorial debut and boosted the career of Dangerfield, who was previously known mostly for his stand-up comedy. Grossing nearly $40 million at the domestic box office, the 17th highest of the year, it was the first of a series of similar comedies. A sequel, Caddyshack 2, followed, though only Chase reprised his role and the film was poorly received. The film has a cult following and was described by ESPN as perhaps the funniest sports film ever made. I tend to agree. The plot is this. 
Danny Noonan, Michael O'Keefe, works as a caddy at the exclusive Bushwood Country Club to earn enough money to go to college. Danny caddies for Ty Webb, Chevy Chase, a mischievous but avid golfer and the son of one of Bushwood's co-founders. Danny tries to gain favor with Judge Smales, Ted Knight, the country club's arrogant co-founder and director of the Caddy Scholarship Program, by caddying for him. Meanwhile, Carl Spackler, Bill Murray, a mentally unstable groundskeeper who lives in the maintenance building, is sent by his Scottish supervisor, Sandy McFittish, Thomas Carlin, to hunt a gopher that is damaging the course. He attempts to kill it with a rifle and high-pressure hose, but fails. Al Chervik, Rodney Dangerfield, a loud and free-spirited nouveau riche golfer, begins attending the club. Chervik distracts Smales as he tees off, causing his shot to go badly. Later, frustrated by slow play, Chervik wagers with Smales. Smales is furious for losing the bet and throws his putter, injuring an elderly woman. Danny takes the blame for the incident to gain Smales' favor. Smales encourages him to apply for the Caddy Scholarship. At Bushwood's annual 4th of July banquet, Danny and his girlfriend Maggie, Sarah Holcomb, work as waiting staff. Chervik continues to annoy Smales and the club members while Danny becomes attracted to Lacey Underall, Cindy Morgan, Smales' promiscuous niece. Later, Danny wins the Caddy Day Golf Tournament and the scholarship, earning him an invitation from Smales to attend the christening ceremony for his boat. The boat is sunk at the event after an accident involving Chervik's larger boat. Returning home, Smales discovers Lacey and Danny in bed at his house. Expecting to be fired or to have the scholarship revoked, Danny is surprised when Smales only demands that he keeps the incident secret. Unable to bear the continued presence of the uncouth Chervik, Smales confronts him and announces that he will never be granted a membership. Chervik counters by announcing that he would never consider being a member. He insults the country club and claims to be there merely to evaluate buying it and developing the land into condominiums. After a brief fight and exchange of insults, Webb suggests that they discuss the situation over drinks. After Smales demands satisfaction, Chervik proposes a golf team match. Chervik proposes a team golf match with Smales and his regular golfing partner, Dr. Beeper, Dan Rezin, against Chervik and Webb. Against club rules, they also agree to a $20,000 wager on the match, which quickly doubles to $40,000. That evening, Webb practices for the game against Smales, and his errant shot brings him to meet Carl and the two share of bottle of wine and a joint. The match is held the next day. Word spreads of the stakes involved, drawing in a crowd. During the game, Smales and Beeper take the lead, while Chervik, to his chagrin, is playing the worst game of his life. He reacts to Smales' wisecracks by angrily doubling the wager to $80,000 per team. When his own ricocheting ball strikes his arm, Chervik fakes an injury in hopes of having the contest declared a draw. Lou, Brian Doyle Murray, the caddy manager, or the caddy master, who was acting as an umpire, tells Chervik his team will forfeit unless they find a substitute. When Webb chooses Danny, Smales threatened to revoke his scholarship, but Chervik promises Danny that he will make it worth his while if he wins. 
Danny chooses to play. Upon reaching the final hole, the score is tied. Judge Smell scores a birdie. Danny has to complete a difficult putt to win. Chervik again doubles the wager based on Danny making the putt. Danny's putt leaves the ball hanging over the edge of the hole. At that moment, in his latest attempt to kill the gopher, Carl detonates plastic explosive that he has rigged around the golf course. Several explosions shake the ground and cause the ball to drop into the hole, handing Danny, Webb, and Chervik victory on the wager. Smales refuses to pay, so Chervik beckons his two intimidating men to help the judge find his checkbook. As Smales is chased across the course, Chervik leads a wild party at the clubhouse, attended by all of the onlookers at the match. Some distance away, the gopher emerges from the underground, unharmed, and dances to the film's main theme, I'm All Right, amid the smoldering ruins of the golf course. I I absolutely love this movie for a bunch of reasons. The film was inspired by writer and co-star Brian Doyle Murray's memories of working as a caddy at Indian Hill Club in Winnetka, Illinois. His brothers Bill and John Murray, production assistant and caddy extra, and director Harold Ramis also had worked as caddies when they were teenagers. Many of the characters in the film were based on characters they had encountered through their various experiences at the club, including a young woman, upon whom the character Maggie is based, and the Havercamps, a doddering old couple, John and Elma, longtime members of the club who can barely hit the ball out of the shadows. The scene involving a baby Ruth candy bar being thrown into the swimming pool was based on a real-life incident at Doyle Murray's high school. The scene at which Al Chervik hits Judge Smells in the genitals with a struck ball happened to Ramus on what he said was the second of his two rounds of golf on a nine-hole public course. The film was shot over 11 weeks during the autumn of 1979. Hurricane David in early September delayed production. Golf scenes were filmed at the Rolling Hills Golf Club, now the Grand Oaks Golf Club, in Davie, Florida. According to Ramis, Rolling Hills was chosen because the course did not have any palm trees. He wanted the film to feel that it was in the Midwest, not Florida. The explosions that take place during the climax of the film were reported to the nearby Fort Lauderdale Airport by an incoming pilot who suspected that a plane had crashed. The 4th of July dinner and dancing scene was filmed at the Boca Raton Hotel and Club in Boca Raton, Florida, while the Yacht Club scene was shot at the Rusty Pelican Restaurant in Key Biscayne, Florida. The scene that begins when Ty Webb's golf ball crashes into Carl Speckler's shack was not in the original script. It was added by director Harold Ramis after realizing that two of his biggest stars, Chevy Chase and Bill Murray, who previously did not get along due to a few dating back to their days on Saturday Night Live, but were at least tolerant and professional towards each other while on the set. Until then, did not appear in a scene together. The three met for lunch and wrote the scene. This is the only film that Chase and Murray have appeared in together. Murray improvised much of a Cinderella story scene based on two lines of stage direction. Ramis gave him direction to act as a child. Murray hit flowers with a grass whip 
while fantasizing aloud about winning the U.S. Masters, a major golf tournament. Murray was with the production only six days, and all of his dialogue was heavily embellished by his spontaneous improvisations. A deal was made with John Dykstra's effects company for visual effects, including lighting, stormy sky effects, flying golf balls, and disappearing greens flags. The gopher was part of the effects package. Dykstra's technicians added hydraulic animations to the puppet, including ear movement, and built the tunnels through which it moved. The production became infamous for the amount of drug usage which occurred on set, with supporting actor Peter Burkrott describing cocaine as the fuel that kept the film running. It was released in July of 1980, and grossed $3.1 million during its opening weekend, and went on to make $39,846,344 in North America. The film was met with underwhelming reviews in its original release. Roger Ebert gave the film two and a half stars out of four and wrote, Caddyshack feels more like a movie that was written rather loosely, so that when shooting began, there was freedom, too much freedom, for it to wander off in all directions in search of comic inspiration. Gene Siskel gave the film three out of four stars, saying it was funny about half the time it tries to be, which is a pretty good average for a comedy. The film has gained a cult following over the years after its release and has been positively reappraised by many film critics. The film holds a 73% approval rating with Rotten Tomatoes based on 59 mostly contemporary reviews with an average rating of 6.56 out of 10. The website's critical consensus reads, Though unabashedly crude and juvenile, Caddyshack nevertheless scores with its classic slapstick, unforgettable characters, and endlessly quotable dialogue. Christopher Null gave the film four stars out of five in his 2005 review and wrote, They don't make them like this anymore. The plot wanders around the golf course and involves a half a dozen elements, but if you simply dig the gopher, the caddy, and Dangerfield, you're not going to do half bad. Tiger Woods said that he liked the film and played Spackler in an American Express commercial based on the film. Many of the film's quotes are part of popular culture, and that I can say for sure. Ramis noted in the DVD documentary that TV Guide had originally given the film two stars out of four, but over time the rating had gone up to three stars. He himself said he could barely watch it. All I see are a bunch of compromises and things that it could have been better, such as the poor swings of everyone except for O'Keefe. Denmark was the only place outside of the United States where Caddyshack was initially a hit. The distributor had cut 20 minutes to emphasize Bill Murray's role. Heaven Help Us is a 1985 American comedy drama film starring Andrew McCarthy, Mary Stuart Masterson, Kevin Dillon, Patrick Dempsey, and Stephen Jeffries as a group of 1960s Brooklyn teenagers with Jay Patterson, Wallace Shawn, John Hurd, and Donald Sutherland as the teachers and administrators at the private Catholic school the boys attend. In 1965, Boston teenager Michael Dunn, Andrew McCarthy, and his young sister Boo, Jennifer Dundas, have been sent to Brooklyn to live with their Irish Catholic grandparents following the deaths of their parents. Michael Dunn is enrolled at St. Basil's, a strict all-boys Roman Catholic school. 
his grandmother is determined to have him fulfill his parents' dream of having him join the priesthood. Dunn befriends Caesar, Malcolm Denare, a heavy, bespectacled student who enjoys reading. Caesar helps Dunn catch up with the rest of the class, but because of their association, foul-mouthed bully and underachiever Ed Rooney, Kevin Dillon, pranks Dunn outside of the soda fountain across the street from school. After Rooney pulls a prank on Caesar, a teacher, Brother Constantine, Jay Patterson, attempts to get Dunn to identify the prankster by striking Dunn's open palms with a paddle. Fed up with Dunn's refusal to rat out the perpetrator, Constance shoves him to the floor. Dunn lunges towards Rooney, and the pair are separated. Dunn and Rooney are sent to the office of the headmaster, Brother Thaddeus Donald Sutherland. Rooney Impressed by Dunn's refusal to snitch, attempts to patch things up between them, but Dunn wants nothing to do with him. After school, Rooney tells Dunn that if they do not become friends, he will have to continue in his harassment in order to save face. Reluctantly, Dunn befriends Rooney and his friends Williams, Stephen Jeffries, and Corbett, Patrick Dempsey. Dunn also befriends Danny, Mary Stewart Masterson, a teenage girl who runs the soda fountain across from the school and cares for her mentally infirm father, Jimmy Rainey Weeks. Danny's fountain shop is raided numerous times by the brothers, who wish to catch St. Basil's students misbehaving. The raids leave the shop in the shambles. After one raid, Dunn helps Danny clean things up, sparking a romance. At the Sacrament of Confession, Caesar enters the confessional by Father Abruzzi, while Sean becomes preoccupied with another student's misbehavior. Rooney enters the priest's booth and hears Caesar's confession, giving him the penance of befriending Rooney and making sure he gets passing grades. As a result, Caesar tutors and befriends Rooney. The relationship between Don and Danny further develops, culminating in a passionate kiss under the boardwalk. One day, during one of the brothers' routine raids, Danny takes a stand and locks them out. The brothers leave, but later contact social services. A few days later, Dunn and his friends see police cars and a few of the brothers surrounding the soda fountain as Danny's father is led out in handcuffs. Dunn rushes in and finds that social workers are preparing to take Danny away. A shaken Dunn takes Danny in his arms. Weeping, she wants him to promise that he won't be sad over her departure. An angry Rooney develops another prank with the help of Caesar, Williams, and Corbett. The boys sneak onto school grounds and decapitate the statue of St. Basil. During an assembly the next day, Rooney presents Dunn with a duffel bag containing the missing head. Brother Constance shows up knowing that he has found the vandals. The boys are taken into the gym where Constance hits Corbett and Williams with a leather strap in an attempt to extract a confession. Caesar presents Constance with a doctor's note, presumably to exempt him from corporal punishment. Constance drags the cowering Caesar to the floor, beating him with the strap. Dunn shoves Constance to the floor and then flees, with the brother and the other boys following him. The chase ends in the auditorium during the assembly. Constance backhands Dunn and calls him a bastard. Dunn delivers an uppercut to Constance, knocking him to the floor and causing pandemonium as the student body rises to his feet and cheers. Thaddeus suspends all five boys for two weeks. He then presents Constance, whom he says started the altercation, 
with an order that he be transferred to another assignment where he will not work with children. The five boys walk out of school downtrodden, but then joyfully realize they will not have to attend school for two weeks. Now, there's a gay angle to almost all of this stuff, but uh, the, the thing about Heaven Help Us is that Stephen Jeffries, who also played Evil Ed and Fright Night, as, as well as Wendell Tavette in Fraternity Vacation, went on to be known as Sam Ritter, a gay adult film performer. So that's kind of gay. I remember the principal of my high school and my freshman year was very much like the brother Thaddeus character. He was pleasant, reflective, calm, and inherently kind. I also remember that there was a brother who was very much like the brother Constance character. He was not a good fit for teaching teenage boys, in my humble opinion. Kinda high strung. And this is a mostly male movie. This could have been made by John Ford. Donald Sutherland, John Hurd, Andrew McCarthy, Mary Stuart Masterson, Kevin Dillon, Malcolm Denari, Wallace Shawn, Jay Patterson, Patrick Dempsey, Stephen Jeffries, Dana Barron, and Yardley Smith. So I think there's, what, three girls. Not a lot. Now, here's the best part about this. The story was originally written in 1978 as a master's thesis by Charles Perpera, a student at NYU who attended Catholic boys' schools. An NYU teacher showed the script, first called Catholic Boys, to producer Dan Wigutow, who tried unsuccessfully to introduce production companies. Perpera dropped out of NYU and was fired from his job at a lithography shop for union organizing. He was denied unemployment benefits because his nighttime screenwriting was considered potentially lucrative employment, so he filed for bankruptcy, borrowed money, and headed for India. Now, I have to say, uh, uh, from what I've read, uh, Charles Perpera had been approached for many, many, many years by other men who believed that they all attended school with him. And they just somehow missed each other. Uh, and Charles Prepper spent an awful lot of time explaining to people, said, I'm sorry, I went to high school in Brooklyn. I didn't know you. We had a shared common experience, but it was something that happened to a lot of people. It just seemed like we were, we were all in the same place. I felt the same way. And I, and I graduated high school uh, 13 years later after the movie took place, but I went to a Catholic all-boys high school, and it was very similar. Church of St. Michael, built in 1921 and the now-closed St. Michael's Parish School, we used as the fictional St. Basil's Church and St. Basil's School, run by the factual order of St. Basil. Filming used external and internal shots of this church and school and around the neighborhood. An auditorium scene was filmed using students from Cardinal Spellman High School in the Bronx. The film was originally shot as Catholic Boys, but the title was changed to Heaven Help Us because HBO and TriStar were afraid the original title might alienate some viewers. To make the film more upbeat, there were changes made to a plot involving a disenchanted teacher and the addition of spoken dialogue. The film was not a commercial success. McCarthy later called it a very lovely movie that 12 people saw, including me, and describing it as my favorite and or the best movie I did in that whole era of those movies. It was very sweet, and it was very funny, and it was something that resounded inside me. Now, my own personal reflections. I caddied, being a teenage caddy, 
and thinking I was the only one who thought they could possibly conceive the plot of Caddyshack. I am not kidding when I tell you I went around for five years insisting that a movie very similar to Caddyshack would be hilarious. My movie had a filthy, lecherous groundskeeper who was always high or drunk. My movie had an out-there golf pro. My movie absolutely had a Rodney character with a gigantic golf bag. I caddied for him frequently. (laughs) He tipped well. My movie had an actual Caddyshack. My movie had a starter, or caddy master, who dressed and acted like the Brian Doyle Murray character, right down to the hat, shades, mustache, and clothing. Eerily similar. And I learned that thousands of guys who caddied felt the exact same way, and I believed for quite some time that it was based solely on Doug Kenny's life, and that that experience was not as distinct as I believed. And it was largely based on the Murray brothers' recollections, particularly Brian Doyle Murray, writing about his, his older brother, and his younger brother John's experiences. John served me one night at a bar on West 30th Street that he once told a story about with Bill and the Grateful Dead with Dan Aykroyd singing. But they were not there when I was. Or were they? We had a Mr. Personality who won the Caddy Scholarship. We had a Caddy Tournament. We had the completely disconnected ladies from several generations of white people before, let's say, Watergate, who would say things like, Ooh, that's a dilly. And would get all whoop, whoop when they would lift their golf clubs. It was like the River City's pick a little ladies in the Music Man. One of my fellow caddies was a very funny guy. And he would make suggestive gestures behind the backs of the ladies. And they all knew exactly what he's doing. What he was doing, it gave them a kick. Now, to explain, on Tuesdays, uh, it was ladies doing nine holes. Um, those are all the wives of the members of the club who are the guys who you caddied for on the weekends. And they would play nine holes, and they would play nine terrible holes. There was usually one or two good golfers among them, but for the most part, they were just out there for the exercise and to socialize. We had the older couples who took forever and sometimes got lost on the golf course. They had been playing for over four decades. The men all looked like Woodrow Wilson or Calvin Coolidge. We had one couple who lived around the corner from me. She was a patrician school teacher with a terrible reputation for being a mean-spirited disciplinarian, more interested in insulting her students than teaching. And she wore her hair in a tight bun with frumpy clothing. Not only was she disliked by a lot of students, but one evening, as young adults, since she was a neighbor, my buddies and I were eating at a local diner and wanted to say hello. But she not only disregarded our good intentions, but took the opportunity to insult each and every one of us and ended up with a, how do you like them apples, type of remark. We all got sucker punched by that mean old witch. We had one old cranky guy who did a rain dance or a war dance as part of his backswing. He was also known as a prick. (laughs) We had uh, larcenous caddies. We had mischievous caddies. We would sometimes sneak on to the Garden City Men's Club and always say that if anybody asked us, we would say that we were on the St. Paul's golf team. 
St. Paul's being a private all-boys school on the other side of the golf course. One day we were playing and four or five guys came up and wanted to play through. Turns out they were the St. Paul's golf team. They were actually swell fellas and good sports, I should certainly say. I learned how to play cards in the caddy shack from guys who did time. I knew a Vietnam vet who caddied, suffering from extreme PTSD before it was called PTSD. He landed on a bungee stick in the forest, spent eight months in the hospital in Vietnam. He had a far-off look in his eyes and perspired profusely most of the time. A nice guy to me. I don't know if he took his abuse out on others. Now, the, the Carl Spackler guy was eerily similar to somebody in my life. His name was Leroy, and he was known as a lecherous drunk, and he would say the most outrageously filthy things about uh, women golfers while you were standing there watching him from 10, 15 feet away from the tee. We also had greenskeepers who drank a lot. They fell down drunk in front of impressionable youth. They were guys who had a little bit more than the other almost vagrant caddies. They could afford a teeny little bit of life. Not much, though. And they had relationships of some kind that required a little bit of consistency and sobriety. (laughs) Come on now. But somebody loved, cared for, were responsible, or relied on them to be responsible in life, whereas many of the other guys were on their own and were not capable of doing much for themselves. Many of these guys did time. I realized later in life that one of the guys I knew and played cards with was a thief. And he and his wife, who looked like grandparents, would case neighborhoods, acting like they were an older couple going for a stroll in the afternoon. (laughs) And they actually did steal. We played gin rummy, knocking rummy, for money. Once again, the drinking. They drank gin. Cheap hip flasks of it all the time. Some were blind drunk by 11 a.m. after caddying. We would often go to the nearest White Castle, which was in close enough walking distance, for food, and they would say goodbye to me after grabbing a few bags of belly bombs as we approached the liquor store, which they would go into and I would keep on going. I would go on my way and they would buy more booze and wait for the bus to the track. Now, there's a story about a track and field star who I caddied with, who I looked up to, who was an older cute guy, and I had a bit of a crush on him. And he was a well-known track and field star who had succeeded very well in America as a teenage boy. And he had been on some sort of diplomatic uh, track and field uh, competition in an adversarial nation. And he was deported after what was an international incident. The story was he was offered $50, which he accepted in exchange for his American genes and had to change them with the person who offered to buy them in the nearest public men's room. Uh, I'm not so sure that story was totally plausible. It seemed a little bit rehearsed. But hey, man, I would have. And I would have done anything he would have suggested. I was, what, 15, 16 years old. I had a crush on him. We had 
a bunch of uptight Judge Smales guys. Caddies were to blame for missed putts because they were in my line or jiggled the bags or didn't see where their shank or slice landed. I even caddied and worked as a waiter at one place, which is kind of crummy in comparison to the place where I was normally a caddy, where I caught the head waiter and club manager packing the manager's station wagon with thousands of dollars of foodstuffs while the members were upstairs dancing and drinking the night away. It was a country club I did not like at all. Too trashy in the first place, unlike the one I spent most of my time caddying at. After I got over being hurt by learning how common my experience was, I brooded and then saw Heaven Help Us. And I really believed for a little while that I had some sort of inside knowledge on it, but I didn't. Even though I went to a Catholic all-boys high school in the 70s, many, many guys felt that it was stolen from their own experiences. It's just that we had a resounding common experience that we perceived as unique. Caddyshack, Heaven Help Us, and Dazed and Confused portrayed the common experience so well that three of us, all the same age, me being the only former caddy and all-boys Catholic high school alum, went to see Dazed and Confused and after leaving the theater, we had to shake it off for a minute because we were all transported back to that exact point in our lives. It was that compelling. It was as vividly real as I remember it. This is what life was like for me in May of 1976. Not to forget the similarities in the movies Help and Help Us and Caddyshack and my own personal hell. For the movie Dazed and Confused, I actually had a real-life equivalent of every single character in that movie. Every single character was someone I could point to in real life and say, that's him, that's her, that's him. And, and, and this went back and forth, and it was funnier to me because I actually had a real-life counterpart. And I don't know any other movie that's ever happened or ever appealed to me that way, but it caught me off guard. And it was so compellingly accurate and so precise that I was swept up and enjoyed it immensely. So now I'm going to close with uh, reminiscences of my own teenage years on Long Island. Okay, because not only did I have a real-life equivalent for every character in Dazed and Confused, but there were other things that were going on on Long Island at the same time. Now, not only everybody, and I mean everybody, from Rockville Center on Long Island, but every Catholic high school girl on Long Island was completely, madly in love with Jackson Brown. And they all had bangs and wore eyes on tops. And for some reason, the prehistoric version of emo guys loved Joni Mitchell just the same. And you would always hear somebody or somebody's older brother, sister, relations, speaking in reverential tones about going to the mythical Tanglewood and the Berkshires. And the people who did this usually drove or rode around in a van, which was, as they say, customized with sound systems, Jensen speakers, anyone? And shag rugs and lights and built-in furniture, and paint jobs with otherworldly images. 
we saw Twisted Sister play a free gig at Adventureland at Route 110 in Farmingdale. Adventureland is an amusement park on Long Island. A Wikipedia says Adventureland was in the music video Love of a Lifetime by Chaka Khan. Adventureland was also featured in the movie Music and Lyrics. Adventureland was also shown in the movie Sweet Liberty. The 2009 film Adventureland was based on director Greg Matola's experiences working there during his youth. Scenes from the season two premiere of The Americans were filmed at Adventureland. Scenes from the 2017 film Good Time were filmed at Adventureland. Scenes from the final episode of Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt were filmed at Adventureland. Advertisement for Daniel Keemstar Keem's Cotton Candy G Fuel Flavor was filmed at Adventureland. There are a few other films that were filmed there. And it was also a stage for the King of Fighters 97. And they had a blue screen video booth where you could lip sync or dub, as they say now, to one of their own songs or use your own, like karaoke. And my friends did their own music videos with their own songs. We also had something called Party in the Park, a radio station known as WLIR 92.7 FM produced free shows for their listeners at public parks. It was great. I remember seeing Greg Kinn. We also had the Uniondale Mini Cinema, the greatest movie theater of all time in my rose-tinted memory. Legendary, best movies, coolest joint. Everything from Woodstock to Rocky Horror to the Grateful Dead movie to Max Fleischer trippy cartoons. It really was just like a snippet of Dazed and Confused in so many concrete ways. One significant difference that we experienced from all these movies was that we had the great blackout of 1977. Now that was not in the script. We used to hang out at Friendly's, Friendly's Ice Cream Parlors. I like to think that I was a very polite, pleasant young man, but I think I might not have realized that I could possibly have been atrocious. I was with friends, and we were all sophomoric kids who were using the experience of going to Friendly's as a learning place to incubate and refine some of those valuable social skills that are so very needed. According to Wikipedia, Friendly's has suffered some severe financial problems and has been taken over by a corporation with deep experience in restaurant investment and franchising. The remaining 130 locations all are intended to remain open. Dazed and Confused ended with a bunch of guys and one girl heading off to get concert tickets. In my life, in my memory, standing online to get tickets to concerts was frequently a memorable event in and of itself. What can we learn from this story? Loyalty, love, and youthful exuberance are extremely important to friends, whether they are kids or adults recalling their halcyon days. Everybody I was friends with back then, who I am still connected with via social media, have a special place in my heart and we share many of the same memories. Thanks for listening. See you next time. And as the kitties say, peace out.